Welcome to the Beef Brunch Educational Series podcast, bringing you information on cattle production and management in Louisiana and surrounding states. Okay, hi everyone. Um, my name is Ashley Edwards, and I want to thank y'all for joining us for our Beef Brunch Educational Series webinar um, this month. This is June of 2021. We have Mr. Tyler Brode with us, and he's going to be talking on receiving strategies and management of high-risk stalker calves. Uh, Tyler did his bachelor's in animal science at LSU and followed that up with a master's um, at Mississippi State focused on beef cattle production. He is currently one of our um, livestock specialists for 4-H for the LSU Ag Center. He's an instructor in the School of Animal Sciences and um, is also working on his PhD, so he's keeping kind of busy. But um, before we, we send it over to Tyler, uh, just a few reminders. Your microphones are going to be muted, um, but if you have any questions, if you're watching this online, you can type those into the Q&A box um, and I'll be monitoring those. If you've called in um, and you would like to ask a question, so if you called in and you're just listening to this on your phone, you can text me any questions. My number is 512-818-5476. Uh, with that, Tyler, I'm going to go ahead and send it over to you. You can unmute and begin whenever you're ready. All right, can you hear me? Yes, sir, you're good. All right, perfect. Um, so thanks for that introduction, Dr. Edwards. And so like she mentioned, I'm going to talk just a little bit about receiving strategies and management of high-risk stalker calves. And so as Dr. Edwards mentioned, I currently serve as the 4-H livestock specialist and so also teach in our animal science department. So I don't have a, a formal research appointment. Uh, but I, I did my graduate work at Mississippi State focusing on the stalker segment of the beef industry and, and more specifically looking at animal health and nutrition and kind of that interaction between the two uh, when managing a set of high-risk calves. And so that's kind of going to be the basis for this particular talk and, and I'll go through and provide some background information. We'll discuss um, some important factors to consider when we think about receiving strategies and just general management of stalker calves. And then I'll kind of just give you a brief research recap and kind of tell you um, what I did as a graduate student at Mississippi State and, and a little bit on the, the results that we found um, dealing with that particular project. And so uh, we're going to start really elementary and, and I tell my students whenever I, I teach on this topic, we're going to take it back to that intro to animal science just to kind of lay the foundation or give you that understanding of uh, the exact or specific time point in the animal's life that we're talking about whenever we say we're going to discuss stalker cattle uh, management systems. And so if you think about the different segments of the industry, starting with our seed stock producers, all the way down until uh, you get to the people like me that are the consumers of, of beef, um, you know, there are many different time points throughout this, this chain or this um, timeline that, that the animal goes through where that animal is going to switch hands or enter into a new management system. And so for this particular talk, we are focusing on the stalker segment, which is right here, right? So situated between that cow-calf segment and the feedlot, um, that's going to be the focus or the time point of interest that we're speaking about in terms of managing the animal during this specific um, time in it, its life. And so when we think about stalker cattle production and, and where it's taking place and the areas that uh, are well equipped to um, run stalker cattle systems, really the Southeast uh, is a really good location, right? And we all know that uh, we're from there and, and we understand that we, we have the ability to grow forages just about year round. 
uh, so we can graze cattle on our, our warm season forages. We can plant ryegrass and other cool season forages that uh, we are able to graze cattle on. And, and so we really kind of have that advantage that sets us up to be um, a real player in the world of stocker cattle production. And so we know that calves can typically be housed in pasture settings or in dry lots. And so from a production standpoint, probably our most common system that stocker cattle are placed in would be that pasture setting. When I discuss a little bit about the research that I was involved in at Mississippi State, you'll see that we actually dry lotted calves. And so there are many systems out there. Obviously, the specific system that a producer is going to use is going to be dictated by the resources that they have available to them in terms of land, feed, uh, all those things necessary to manage a set of calves. So, uh, this is a, a segment of the industry that's really gaining popularity in our part of the country. And so if you're wondering, you know, maybe what exactly, you know, is he talking about when he refers to a stalker calf? Um, it's typically calves that have been weaned and they're intended for sale as commercial feeder cattle, but they haven't been placed into a feedlot yet. And so typically they haven't been placed into the feedlot because they aren't meeting that weight requirement. Uh, that those feed yards are typically looking for when those cattle enter uh, into that system. And so the immediate demand for stocker cattle is going to be uh, impacted by uh, a few different things, and it's largely determined by forage availability as well as the prices associated with the stocker and feeder calves at that particular time. And so if you want to think about it from a size standpoint, you know, what size calf are we talking about when we refer to stocker animals? They typically weigh between three and 800 pounds. So young, lightweight calves, typically um, freshly weaned. And, and I'll go into a little bit more specifics in terms of all the challenges that are associated with these young, lightweight calves and things that we have to consider from a management standpoint. But that's the size of the animal that we're talking about whenever we discuss these stocker cattle systems. And so during this phase, it's important for producers to remember that we need to place our emphasis on animal growth uh, compared to fattening to achieve animal weight gain, right? So we need these animals to come in and we need them to efficiently put on weight in order for them to be ready to be placed into a, a cattle feeding system in the feedlot. And so we, we need to remember during this time point, it's a, you know, a young animal that's growing, has really high nutrient demands. And so we need to make sure that we are providing adequate nutrition from the standpoint of meeting those nutrient requirements for growth. And so I just mentioned a couple of different systems that are available in terms of dry lotting, forage-based or pasture type systems. And our forage-based production systems are typically emphasized instead of those high grain finishing diets or those dry lot systems where everything those cattle are consuming is being delivered to them in the form um, of a ration. So just keep these basic things in mind as we move through the remainder of the talk to to hopefully, um, you know, gain an understanding of, of exactly what uh, we're talking about. And so whenever we talk about stocker calves or really when we talk about cattle in general, we, we often think about risk, right? And, and the risks that are associated um, with the animals that we are acquiring or purchasing and bringing back to our farm. And so a lot of times um, our stocker operators are dealing with these really high risk calves. And so I found this information from a publication, I think from the University of Nebraska, and it, it kind of um, laid out the definition of what a high risk calf is. And I, I think it, it really helps to make sense of that. So 
high-risk calves are animals that have been recently weaned, and we have really no known history related to vaccinations. Typically, these calves have been transported for a long period of time, so they've been on a truck, and they've traveled several hundred miles down the, the interstate. And typically, it's calves that have been commingled with other lots at the sale barn. And so um, when we think about just, uh, just a really quick and simple definition of what is a high-risk calf, it's really one that we have no known history on. So we don't know the origin of the calf. We don't know where it came from. Maybe we have no idea in terms of health management, nutritional management. Um, and so typically, these are calves that are going to be run through a sale barn. And so when I teach about risk in some of the classes uh, that I teach on campus, you know, when we think about the, the different levels of risk associated with animals that we're purchasing, if we go directly to a farm and buy off the farm and, and transport it straight from the farm of origin to our place, that's probably the lowest risk. Or I guess the lowest risk is going to be animals we produce on our farm, right? And then if we go out and purchase some, we increase risk a little bit. Uh, if we go directly to a farm, but if we know everything about that animal, uh, you know, we can sleep easy at night and know that we're not purchasing something that's going to threaten the, the rest of our cattle population. If we go to some sort of breed association cell where we have animals being brought in from different places, obviously that level of risk is going to increase. And then our highest level of risk, like I mentioned, is going to be those calves that we are acquiring from a sale barn. They're commingled with animals from you know, several different areas, could be different states, various management practices, and we really don't have a lot of information on those animals. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we say uh, high-risk soccer calves. And when I get to my research recap, um, I'll really spell it out for you because we really modeled real life in terms of the way that we set that project up. And we actually did acquire animals that were... Uh, uh, very high risk uh, and, and at a very high risk for um, a lot of different disease. And so we'll talk about that uh, later on in the webinar. So um, that was just uh, some brief background information to lay the foundation in terms of uh, exactly what time point in the animal's life we're talking about, what a stalker calf is, and then what do we mean when we say high risk. And so now just a little bit of introduction to the stalker industry. And so it's a vital part to our nation's beef industry. We have a significant number of calves that are stockered in the state of Louisiana on an annual basis. And I don't have a statistic to report on the number of heads stockered in the state of Louisiana, but uh, my time spent in Mississippi, I think it was about um, a half a million head of the cattle were stockered in Mississippi on an annual basis. And that figure is probably six or seven years old. So uh, we're probably pretty comparable, right? Similar climates, uh, similar ability in terms of growing forages. And so I would assume that, you know, we have um, a decent amount of stocker calves in the state of Louisiana. And so uh, during this time, the goal is to add value while optimizing performance and profitability, right? So we're acquiring these lightweight, freshly weaned calves. We're turning them out on some lush forage in hopes of being able to add some cheap weight gain to those animals so that we can then sell them and, and make a profit. And so cattle that have gone through a stocker system have received various health procedures. And so if you think about it, if someone's acquiring these animals from a sale barn, we don't know what they've had at the farm of origin. Typically a stocker cattle system is going to involve the following procedures. And so those calves are going to be vaccinated, dewormed, castrated if they haven't been, as well as dehorned. And then obviously this isn't an all comprehensive list. It's going to uh, depend on 
uh, the producer's individual receiving strategy as to what else is done when those calves are received. <clears throat> so calves that are transitioning to a stocker system, uh, especially from a pasture-based ranch system, experience unique and multiple stressors that are going to increase the likelihood of disease. And specifically in the one that uh, I'm going to fo focus on in this webinar is bovine respiratory disease. And so we've all seen that acronym BRD, and so that's what we're talking about. And I'll define it uh, in a little more detail here in a few minutes. Um, but these animals that are, are going through this uh, stressful time from weaning and then being put on a truck, co-mingled and going to a new location, all of these things are going to impact that animal's susceptibility to contracting BRD. Um, calves that are received into a stalker system are often naive from the immunity standpoint, um, and they're exposed to a variety of new pathogens. Um, and then to compound all of these things, feed intake is typically low. And these animals are not meeting their net energy requirements for maintenance until several days after arrival. And so that's what that NEM stands for here, just net energy requirements for maintenance, right? These are young growing calves. And so really, ultimately, we need to meet those energy requirements for growth. And so that's just kind of letting you know that um, it takes us several days before they're even consuming enough just to sustain themselves, much less consuming enough in order for them to perform um, and gain weight at, at a rapid um, rate like we would like to see happen. So just briefly in terms of animal health and immunity, um, so health is just referred to as the overall welfare and condition of the animal. Typically, health is, is somewhat subjective, and it's usually determined by visual observation in addition to some clinical measurements. And I'll talk about those uh, visual signs that we see whenever we deal with bovine respiratory disease. I'll also mention some of the clinical signs that we're looking for. Um, and, and it's somewhat subjective, but obviously we all understand what a sick animal looks like. And so hopefully we can pick up on these signs early enough that we can treat animals to make sure they're uh, in the best health uh, possible. And then immunity is just referred to as the body's reaction to foreign substances that are not associated with a physiological or a pathological result of the reaction. And so we can break immunity down into being innate or acquired. So innate immunity is what that calf is born with. Acquired immunity is um, what that animal is able um, to build up um, uh, as the animal grows. And so the type of immunity present at the time of pathogen exposure is going to impact the occurrence of bovine respiratory disease. And there are several pathogens of interest that um, can threat cattle populations or threaten cattle populations and, and increase the susceptibility of respiratory disease. And so if you aren't familiar with BRD, I just put a little bit of information here and put some um, dollar signs to it just to kind of explain the impact um, that this disease has on the industry. And so BRD is the most common and econ economically detrimental disease of beef cattle post-weaning. Uh, economic losses continue to persist despite improvements in management, vaccines, and antibiotics. Um, it's reported to cost the beef industry upwards of $750 million on an annual basis. And that's an old figure and it's probably increased um, today. And when we think about costs that are associated with bovine respiratory disease, we can divide that into direct or indirect costs. And so um, a direct cost associated with BRD is going to be treatment costs, right? So if a calf contracts bovine respiratory disease, we administer an antibiotic to that calf 
Well, that's a cost, right? That's a direct cost that we incurred because of this. Um, if a calf succumbs to its illness of BRD and, and dies, um, that animal loss, once again, that's a direct cost associated with this disease. And then we can look at indirect costs as things such as losses in overall animal performance. And so, uh, you know, just like when we're sick, we don't want to eat or perform at our best ability. Same thing with these calves, right? If something contracts BRD, uh, we're going to see losses from a performance standpoint. We're going to see a decrease in terms of weight gain. And so those are things that maybe we don't think about uh, because we don't see it directly happening. Um, but those indirect costs can really add up and make a significant impact when we look at just the overall um, impact of how detrimental BRD can be in our cattle populations. And so um, <clears throat> just to, to define it a little more, bovine respiratory disease really refers to a wide range of mnemonic illnesses. And so it's not just one thing that we can isolate or pinpoint and say, oh yeah, this calf has bovine respiratory disease. You know, we can't just take a, a blood sample and do a shoot side test and say, yes, this animal has BRD. It refers to a, a wide range of things. And so it's a complex of diseases that can be characterized by many different types of infection. And I'll go through some of these things here in just a second. Each type of infection is going to have its own cause, uh, clinical signs, as well as economic implications associated with it. Um, so BRD is multifactorial. It's influenced by hosts as well as environmental factors, pathogens, and management practices. And so, um, you know, I'll touch on here in just a second some viral pathogens as well as bacterial pathogens um, that we are concerned with when we think about BRD. But we also have to think about the management side of things, um, the environmental factors that also come into play. And so we kind of combine these hosts and these environmental factors, um, pathogens, different management practices, all these things kind of culminate or come together in order uh, for us to see an animal come down or contract bovine respiratory disease. And so um, the pathogens that are most commonly seen are a result of both viral and bacterial factors. Um, these viruses predispose the lungs to bacterial infections by suppressing the defense mechanisms of the respiratory tract of the calf. Um, and, and I realize this isn't a college course, right? But I would, I would like for students to know these viral and bacterial pathogens. And so uh, some of these are kind of tricky and hard to spell. So, I, you know, I don't uh, imagine that, you know, you'll remember all of these, but hopefully you pick up on some of these things, especially when you think back to your vaccination protocols that you're using on the farm. Hopefully a lot of these things ring a bell and, and, and we have management practices in place already that are kind of covering a lot of these things that impact the animal from a respiratory standpoint. So um, things like IBR, BVD, um, and I'll elaborate a little bit on bovine vi viral diarrhea here in a minute, um, PI3 and BRSV. So those are those viral pathogens of interest. And then bacterial pathogens, we're looking at things like Mannheimia hemolytica, Pastorella multacida, and Histophilus somni. So um, once again, you, you don't have to remember these and be able to spell them, but just, you know, keep them in the back of your mind. And as you read through, uh, you know, extension publications or cattle magazines, you'll see these things pop up, especially when BRD is the topic of interest, because these are the ones that we are concerned with. So just remember, it's a complex of things. Um, that kind of all come together to give us what we term as res bovine respiratory disease, and it combines viral and or bacterial pathogens as well as environmental factors. So, you know, 
dusty, crowded areas, um, stress, all these things are going to impact that animal um, and kind of predispose the animal to BRD, especially when these other things are present uh, in order for the animals to contract. And so um, I mentioned bovine viral diarrhea as one of those uh, viral pathogens associated with BRD. And so this is one that it really has gained a lot of interest uh, and um, something that we talk about quite a bit, especially in the world of soccer cattle management. And so uh, BVD or bovine viral diarrhea can be transmitted via vertical or horizontal transmission. So just to kind of clarify that a little bit, vertical transmission means that that infection uh, is happening in utero, whereas horizontal transmission means that that animal contracts it um, during the postnatal growth period. And so um, an animal can actually become what we um, say uh, as persistently infected with BVD when an infection involving a non-pathogenic strain occurs between days 42 and 125 in utero. And, and so when this infection is happening, um, that animal maybe doesn't have its own immune system yet. And so um, once the immune system is fully functional, um, this infection has already taken place. And so that immune system is recognizing this viral pathogen as self. And so it doesn't know that it needs to try to fight this thing off. And so um, the crazy thing about it is that these animals are infected during gestation um, and they become a PI of what we call persistently infected. And they continually shed the virus um, during their entire lifetime. And so the fact that they are constantly shedding the virus leads to the possibility um, that they're going to be infecting their pen mates because we as cattle managers don't know that that calf is in fact shedding BVD um, because they are a PI calf unless we get them tested. And so BVD PI testing is an important management decision that can aid in reducing bovine respiratory disease um, and bovine viral diarrhea in cattle populations. And so you'll see in that picture, um, that's just some tissue samples that will be sent off in order to um, uh, test for BVD in those animals. And so, you know, if a producer were to utilize this management tool, um, you know, it would be smart to go ahead and, and remove those positive animals uh, from the remainder of the population. So I'll talk a little bit about this. Uh, when I talk about my research project, we did have three calves that were BVDPIs. Um, and so I'll, I'll mention what we did with those when I get to that little um, short research recap. So in terms of morbidity and mortality, so we're talking about sick loss as well as death loss in cattle populations. These results vary in the current literature that's out there. And so morbidity rates in soccer operations typically range from zero to 69%. You're probably thinking that that's a, a pretty huge range, and it is. And, and I'll kind of comment briefly on maybe some of the factors associated with why we see that range being so wide. And then from the mortality standpoint, mortality rates in the current literature typically range from zero to 15%. And so some of these differences across the studies or the research that was done um, could be caused by several factors. And I have a few of those factors listed here. And so they could be definition of BRD. Um, so I'll talk in a minute. You know, uh, my research project defined a calf um, uh, as having BRD if they had certain clinical signs um, um, and then a body temperature greater than 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that temperature threshold um, kind of varies in some of the research that's out there. And so maybe that dictates why we see such a huge range 
maybe the treatment protocols that were used could influence that, as well as the stage of production that the calf is actually in. And so obviously when we discuss morbidity and mortality and we discuss these high risk cattle populations, um, the goal is just to reduce it, right? We wanna reduce morbidity, we wanna reduce mortality. And that's probably easier said than done, but there are several management practices that can be done to help us as cattle managers kind of combat these issues that are related um, to morbidity and mortality. And so in terms of diagnosing a calf with BRD, um, they're typically evaluated using a subjective visual evaluation, and usually it involves minimal clinical measurements. Um, symptoms include signs of depression, abnormal appetite, elevated body temperature, and other respiratory signs. And so we all know, because we have experience with cattle, what a sick or just an unthrifty animal um, presents to us like. And you see in this picture here, that that's one that's uh, uh, knocking on death's door for a lack of better terms. And so, um, you know, this animal was on my research project and had, you know, clinical signs really the entire time that it was alive and he was treated uh, numerous times. And so we kind of um, uh, affectionately called him numbers, right? So you see he has numbers written on him. That was his name. Uh, those numbers indicated the last date that we treated that calf. And so that told us as pen riders when we were going through evaluating these animals every day, um, when we could pull that calf to reassess or reevaluate um, him and potentially treat him again. So he was just a chronic case that we never could get better. And he actually did end up um, dying due to, to BRD complications. And you're probably not surprised based on the photograph that you see here. So. Uh, temperature used for BRD diagnosis is typically 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the, the most common um, parameter used in the literature that's out there. That's what I use for my research. And so in writing my thesis and doing the lit review, that's, that, that was the most common one. But there definitely were studies that were done that uh, used um, a different temperature in terms of uh, diagnosing BRD. And so, uh, of course, as someone who spent uh, a couple of years studying stalker cattle production and, and working in the, the, the area of stalker health and nutrition, I have to mention metaphylaxis because this really was um, really the large, one of the largest parts of my research project. And so uh, when I first got to grad school and someone mentioned the term metaphylaxis, uh, number one, didn't know how to spell it, and I really didn't know how to pronounce it either. Uh, but it's actually a, a term that's uh, pretty simple to understand. And so it just, it involves administering an approved antimicrobial or an antibiotic to a population of cattle that are at risk of developing BRD with the goal of improving the overall health and performance of that population of cattle. So um, metaphylaxis programs have been validated for a long time. Um, and you can see some of the research studies down at the bottom of this slide that I pulled some of this information from. And so, you know, as early as the 1980s, we knew that this worked or that, um, you know, we in a research setting, we could uh, implement a metaphylaxis program and, and we could see the results that we were trying to see. Um, and so several studies have reported that metaphylaxis, metaphylaxis programs reduce morbidity and mortality rates and improve average daily gain. The thing that we really have to think about is the financial side of things. And so the cost of metaphylaxis may be higher than just treating sick calves individually. Um, especially in cases of high morbidity, 
And we really have to remember that a medical access program does not eliminate the need for sound management practices. This is just another tool in our toolkit from a management standpoint that we can utilize if we need to. And, um, you know, so uh, my research project did involve a medical access program as a part of a stalker receiving trial. And so I'll, I'll talk briefly about that here in just a little bit. Um, you know, um, I don't know exactly how common this is actually in the real world from a production standpoint and from a financial um, standpoint. And then, you know, we're, we're faced with um, the deal in terms of antibiotic resistance. And so just giving antibiotics to calves that aren't presenting as sick, you know, that opens up a whole other can of worms. But I did just want to mention briefly what metaphylaxis is and that there is some research to back that it can be beneficial, especially when we're dealing with populations of cattle that we know are high risk. And so when I define the type of calf that we were looking for for my research trial, you'll understand why metaphylaxis was uh, probably a pretty sound option for us to consider on that particular uh, population of, of animals. <clears throat> so just briefly, I'll talk a little bit about the impact of crude protein on, on bovine respiratory disease. And remember, my research program really focused on um, kind of that interaction between animal health and nutrition. And so previous investigations, and by that I'm just referring to information that's out there in the current literature, has shown conflicting results related to crude protein levels in the diet of cattle and how it's going to impact their, their susceptibility to respiratory disease. Um, so in some studies, BRD morbidity has been shown to increase with increasing crude protein concentrations in the feed. Um, performance has been shown to be equal to or superior to calves fed lower protein diets. Um, early weaned calves fed high levels of crude protein, experienced an increased average, an increase in average daily gain, and an increased febrile response when challenged with an intranasal dose of bovine herpes virus. Um, and then results suggest that calves fed higher crude protein could be inaccurately diagnosed with BRD. And so I just pulled a few lines out of the results of some of these papers just to show you how conflicting these results are. And so there's no one study um, that's out there that'll tell us if you feed this rate of, of dietary crude protein in the diet for these high-risk stocker calves, these are results that you will see. Uh, we kind of see results all over the place. And so this really lends itself um, to let researchers know that this is an area that could probably be improved upon with uh, some more research in this subject area. Same with the effect of bovine respiratory disease on performance in general. So there are um, some inconsistencies among the data that's out there. Um, some studies report a reduction in average daily gain, a reduction in final body weight, as well as hot carcass weight in steers treated for bovine respiratory disease. So that's just saying that those animals that, that got sick and were treated for BRD, we saw uh, a reduction in average daily gain body weight and hot carcass weight. Um, average daily gain in morbid animals has been shown to be similar to greater than or less than healthy animals. So that bullet point there really tells us nothing, right? And so it tells us that the, the studies that have been done are seeing results that are all over the board. Um, carcass characteristics have been reported to be similar for morbid and healthy animals. So once again, you know, no clear cut answer there. Um, uh, one of these studies reported that there were no differences observed in hot carcass weight fat thickness, longissimus muscle area, internal fat or yield grade uh, in sick versus healthy animals. 
And then BRD, uh, BRD morbidity has been shown to, neg to be negatively correlated with yield grade, hot carcass weight, and marbling score. So once again, I just pulled some, some data out of some papers that are out there related to the impact or the effects of bovine respiratory disease on just overall calf performance. And you can see that there are a, a, a lot of um, varying results that have been found um, in this area. And so just briefly, the, the effect of the stalker phase, so really that one that I'm interested in and really the phase that we're talking about today. Um, so, so this slide is just kind of illustrating the effects of that phase and how it impacted those animals as, as they moved further down the production cycle. So conflicting results have been presented on whether average daily gain during the stalker phase should be high or low. Um, high average daily gain during the stalker phase did not impact average daily gain during the finishing phase and actually led to an increase in the amount of fat on the carcass. So that was found in one of these studies. Um, another study um, reported that calves with low average daily gain during the stalker phase had better average daily gain during the finishing phase and that calves with high average daily gain during the stalker phase had increased hot carcass weights and better quality grades. Um, and so I just gave an entire seminar to our department on the impact uh, or the effects of the stalker phase on subsequent animal performance. And so really there's a lot of information that's out there and there's a lot of discussion that can be had on how stalker or how calves perform during the stalker phase and then how that's going to impact them as they enter the feedlot, and then also how it impacts them from a carcass quality standpoint. And so, you know, maybe I'll, I'll do a future webinar related to how we manage calves during the stalker phase and, and those, those things that we see happen from a performance standpoint as they move through uh, the remaining segments of the industry. And so one thing to point out is that producers are primarily concerned with health and performance as well as profitability in their own respective segments. And sometimes they fail to realize or consider the impact that their management decisions will have um, as that animal moves through the production cycle. So just one thing to consider, you know, all beef cattle producers, regardless of what segment they're actually involved in, uh, we're all in the, the business to produce beef to feed the world, right? And so I, I think sometimes we need to, to remember or consider um, the decisions that I make on my farm today will impact that animal as it moves uh, further on through production. <clears throat> so just uh, to touch on, on receiving strategies, and then I'll kind of break down what's involved with a receiving strategy of these high-risk calves. Um, so receiving, uh, the receiving phase is a critical control point for prevention and minimization of calf diseases. Um, the goal, obviously, is to minimize stress on these newly received calves. Um, these protocols that we design or plan should be um, um, made with knowledge of common diseases and effective management measures. And these uh, receiving strategies or receiving plans um, should include a comprehensive herd health program designed with the guidance of a veterinarian. And so I can't stress that enough. We have to be making these critical management decisions especially when it's related to animal health with the guidance of that herd veterinarian. <clears throat> so just uh, kind of what a generic receiving strategy would look like. So if we received a load of calves today to put, on, to put out on pasture in a stocker system, we would want those cattle to be vaccinated for um, all these things that I mentioned earlier in terms of those, uh, those threats 
from a viral uh, standpoint. So um, we want those cattle to be treated for IVR, BVD, PIA3, as well as BRSV. Um, if we have known health history, that's great. But if we're dealing with high-risk calves, we probably don't know that hurt or that health history on that group. Uh, and so that may not be available. And so um, it's advised that we go ahead and vaccinate for these things. Um, cattle should be individually identified. That's just a fancy way to say that you should put an ear tag in their ear with a, a unique um, ID number. Um, cattle should be dewormed, castrated if that hasn't been done already, dehorned as well as implanted. And so most of these are probably done prior to the stalker phase. Once again, if we know that we're dealing with high risk calves, that's not always the case. In, in my experience, uh, with conducting stalker cattle research, especially when we were acquiring um, groups of calves that we had no known history of. Uh, we had many bull calves show up that were in fact not castrated prior to coming to us. We had calves that weren't dehorned. And so uh, once again, if, you, if you're going through the, the auction barns or the sale barns to acquire these stalker calves, you're probably going to have to do a little bit more, have a little bit more comprehensive receiving strategy in place compared to someone who's purchasing a set of calves directly from, from a farm that they know everything about. Um, during this time, tissue samples should be collected for BVD-PI testing. Um, BVD-PI calves, like I mentioned previously, constantly shed the virus and there's no clinical signs. And so unless we get this test, we don't know that we have a PI calf um, in our group of animals. And so metaphylactic antibiotic administration may be beneficial to reduce the incidence of BRD once again, um, whether or not metaphylaxis is the way to go is going to be uh, dictated by a, a, a number of different things. And it's all gonna be dictated uh, based on the, the group or the type of animal that you're receiving, um, as well as the system that you are putting these animals into. So when we think about these receiving strategies and we think about how we as handlers need to be working with this group of cattle, um, obviously, low stress handling and BQA guidelines can't be stressed enough, and we want to follow those things whenever we are processing or working the, these groups of uh, um, high-risk stalker calves. Um, it's important to remember little things, especially like vaccine handling, uh, as well as injection site management, um, proper use of prods and paddles, and then we always need to read label directions, right? We can't stress that enough to make sure that we are using the appropriate um, drug or antibiotic, whatever it is that we're using, vaccine, uh, we need to make sure that we're using it in the appropriate manner to read the label directions so that we know um, injection sites, uh, you know, the preferred injection site and those sorts of things. Um, when cattle are transported um, just a short distance, maybe you can go ahead and process them and go ahead and, and implement that receiving protocol the day that you receive the cattle. If they're transported several hundred miles or if they're transported a long distance, it may be beneficial to allow a rest period before processing begins. So maybe you bring them to the facility, you keep them in kind of a receiving pen all together, um, make sure they have access to hay and water, those types of things. And then maybe you wanna start the processing or, or the receiving um, protocol um, a day or so after those animals actually make it to your, your farm. The main goal during uh, the receiving um, time point is to minimize stress associated with the transition from the cow-calf system to the stalker system. So a lot of times these high-risk calves are weaned on the trailer from the farm of origin to the sale barn and then ultimately end up at your place. 
And so uh, this calf is going through uh, a ton of stress already. And so if we can um, um, make a conscious effort to handle these animals in a low stress manner, that can help to reduce uh, the overall stress that's being imposed on this calf during this time in its life. So when we think about treatment options, and really this is just kind of related to BRD, but if we're working in, in coordination with our veterinarian, they'll be the one that is um, kind of giving us these treatment options. Uh, but you can see kind of going down this little table here, that increasing effectiveness happens as we go down. And as we increase effectiveness of the antibiotic, it's going to increase in cost. And so, you know, the more broad the antibiotic is, the more expensive it'll be. Um, and I'll talk a little bit when I give the research recap uh, related to the treatment protocol that we used for the high risk set of calves that we were, were working with. <clears throat> and so now I'll just kind of go briefly into the, the research that I conducted um, at my previous institution where I, I obtained a master's degree. Uh, I already mentioned several times that the research focused on stocker cattle health and nutrition and things that we could do from a management standpoint to try and reduce the susceptibility of a calf contracting bovine respiratory disease. And so um, the objectives of this particular study were just to evaluate the effects of metaphylactic antibiotic administration, as well as receiving diet crude protein levels on respiratory disease incidence, mortality, and growth performance of beef calves received into a stalker system. So in terms of our metaphylaxis program, Exceed was the drug that we used. Um, so working or, or um, coming up with this protocol or this research program, I had several uh, PhD animal scientists as well as several veterinarians from the vet school at Mississippi State that worked to create this research project. And so really all the health things were, were done um, with guidance from the vet school and they were involved every step of the way. And then in terms of the, the level of crude protein that, were, that was found in the two diets that we offered the cattle, um, so it was 17.1% or 11.9%, um, and those were referred to as diet one and diet two respectively. So our high crude protein diet was diet one, our low crude protein diet was diet two. And you're probably thinking, why in the heck does he have those random numbers like 17.1 and 11.9? Well, we were shooting for diets that were 18% protein and 12% protein. And after sending off two batches of feed to a commercial laboratory for a nutrient analysis, this is what um, was actually there in the feed that we offered to the animal. So that just kind of gives you a little background on what we were trying to accomplish with this uh, particular study. So just a little bit, uh, not to bore you with um, the, the setup or the design of the study, but it was what we call a two-by-two two factorial design. So it had two levels of metaphylaxis. Either they received exceed upon arrival or they did not. And then two levels of dietary crude protein. Either they were fed that diet one, which was the high protein at 17.1%, or they were fed diet two, which was the lower protein diet at 119 um, I don't know if I said that right. I may have confused you. Diet one, high protein, 17.1%. Diet two, the lower protein, 11.9%. So for this study, like I mentioned already, we mimicked the real world. And so we acquired 244 crossbred steer calves that were purchased through an order buyer. And they were acquired from four different states. So we at least knew the states that they came from. 
That's all we knew. So we had calves that came from Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. So all in the southeastern part of the country. Um, they were all high risk. And when I get into some of the health results, they were a very high risk um, cell barn calves of unknown history. So we knew nothing about them other than that they potentially came from one of those four states. They came through an auction barn. They were assembled um, at an order buyer's facility right outside of Starkville, Mississippi. And then they were delivered to our campus farm. And so they were processed upon arrival. So they literally stepped foot off of the pot load truck and they went into the working facility. They were vaccinated, dewormed, all those things that we did from a receiving standpoint. And then they were sent to their pens. And so we ran into um, some hard lessons learned by not giving those cattle time um, to rest after getting to our facility. Um, and so, um, you know, that's a, a whole nother discussion for another day. The treatments for this uh, study were randomly designed or randomly assigned to each pen. Um, the cattle were examined daily on horseback for signs of bovine respiratory disease. And we diagnosed BRD at the first clinical sign and a body temperature greater than 104 degrees. So those of us that were pen riders got on a horse every day, rode through our 20 pins of calves. If there was a calf that looked unthrifty, there was a calf that had nasal or ocular discharge, labored breathing, coughing, any sign of respiratory disease, we pulled the calf, brought it to the working facility, took a rectal temperature. If it was greater than 104 degrees Fahrenheit, that is what we used to determine that that calf was in fact um, um, suffering from bovine respiratory disease. All right, so just a little bit on descriptive statistics. Once again, uh, don't get hung up on this, and I should have. Um, change these figures just for ease of interpretation, but these numbers here are um, kind of telling you the initial and final body weights of each of our, our treatment groups, and those numbers are represented in kilograms. Um, I should have converted that over to pounds, but this just kind of gives you an idea that uh, we got cattle that were all pretty similar in terms of size whenever we started this study. And then this bottom table is just telling you that we kind of had a plethora of things. So Lots of different breeds and breed types represented. The majority of the calves were black in terms of hide color. We did have some of these other various types associated with. Um, we weren't in South Louisiana, so we didn't have a ton of Brahmin influence, although there are Brahmin influence calves in those states that I mentioned, but we didn't even break them out in terms of visual characteristics. Um, with those cattle that were Indicus uh, influenced, we didn't make notes of that. But they, there were a few, and they're represented in this overall total population that you see here. Um, just to give you an idea on those experimental diets, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, uh, but you can read through it and see. And so um, we had diet one and diet two, and then you can see the percentage of those feed ingredients that were um, made up in each of those diets. And so um, that just kind of gives you an idea. These cattle were dry lotted, and so everything that they consumed was offered to them in this diet, and it was um, um, designed or formulated um, to meet the, the animal's needs um, from a nutritional standpoint. So just a little bit in, in terms of these results, and so this table here is, is telling you um, the effects of metaphylaxis and diet on growth and average daily gain. And so one big thing to note is that there was no interaction between um, BRD and, and diet. And so we presented each of these results kind of um, um, independently of each other. And so uh, we saw some differences in final body weights. 
cattle that consumed the higher protein diet had an increased final body weight compared to cattle that were on the lower protein diet, uh, which is something that we expected. Um, and then in terms of average daily gain, once again, a similar thing was seen. Cattle that were consuming diet one had an increased average daily gain compared to cattle that were consuming diet two. If you look on the right-hand side of the table, this is kind of breaking it down by uh, metaphylaxis groups, so exceed versus no exceed. Um, and so um, the, the final body weight and average daily gain box is highlighted in red. So we see this p-value here. Um, it was 0.1. And so, you know, there's a lot of debate in the scientific community as to whether or not we even need to talk about that. Um, from a, a production standpoint, I just think it's, you know, it's worth mentioning that um, cattle that received exceed did, in fact, have an increased final body weight or tended to, right? It wasn't statistically significant based on that p-value approaching that 0 0.10. Um, but you can see numerically there, there was somewhat of a difference with those cattle having a slight edge in terms of final body weight, those that received exceed compared to those that did not. Same um, scenario seen in average daily gain. Cattle that received exceed tended to um, gain more weight per day compared to cattle that did not receive exceed. When we think about the health outcomes, um, so 176 of the 244 calves were treated for BRD over 6,410 days at risk. And this stuff gets kind of um, complicated when we discuss uh, or the way that we present these results. Um, but just know that this days at risk here, um, this was calculated um, as days uh, from arrival. So when we received that calf until the calf was treated for BRD, died, or finished the trial. And so we calculated that figure or that number for all 244 calves on the research project and then added them all up. And that gave us this value of 6,410 days at risk. So once again, every calf had a different number of days at risk unless they were one of the few that were not treated for BRD. So if it started the trial on day zero, ended the trial on day 60 and was never treated for respiratory disease, that calf was at risk for 60 days. If it started the trial and day 25, the calf was treated for BRD, that calf was at risk for 25 days. If it started the trial and died at day 10, that calf was only on uh, or at risk for 10 days, okay? So days at risk, days from the start of the project until the calf was treated for BRD, died, or finished the trial. So we did a little um, further calculating there and the overall incidence density was, we were looking at about 27 and a half cases of bovine respiratory disease per 1,000 calf days. <clears throat> and so uh, we had 72% morbidity and a 13% mortality. And so if you think back to um, the beginning of this talk where I kind of mentioned what the literature puts out there in terms of ranges, related to morbidity and mortality. Uh, we're a little bit outside of that range from morbidity standpoint. Remember that was zero to 69%. And then mortality range, um, or at least what's out there in, in the, the literature is from zero to 15%, right? So I did lose 32 of the 244 calves in a 60 day period. Um, we had a, a large number of calves actually contract BRD. There's a picture of one calf 232 from pin 20. You see, you know, some nasal discharge happening there. Uh, I don't remember that specific calf, but I'd be willing to bet 
he temped over 104 degrees and we treated him for respiratory disease. So uh, once again, we, we saw a lot of sickness and from a research standpoint, you know, we needed to see that, um, you know, maybe mortality. I, I wish wasn't so high because at, at days it was uh, pretty stressful to drive up to the, the pens where these animals were housed and to see that we, we lost another calf due to, to BRD. But we did everything in our power to keep these animals as healthy as possible. We were mimicking real life. We acquired calves from all over the place. Uh, we commingled them together. We dumped them out into one central location and we managed them for 60 days, much similar to what a lot of producers do um, in the real world. <clears throat> so this figure here is just uh, reporting bovine respiratory disease incidence density. And so you can see we've got incidence density or cases per 1,000 calf days here with uh, metaphylaxis as either no, they did not receive it, or yes, they did receive it. And so we saw a statistical difference here in that metaphylaxis, so administering the exceed upon arrival, decreased or reduced the incidence of BRD in this population of animals by 60%. All right, so once again, like I mentioned, we know that metaphylaxis has been validated since the 1980s. You do this, you manage the animals properly, um, research tells us that we'll see a reduction in BRD, and we did. So we can contribute to that uh, in this regard. When we talk about diet, and, and so once again, this figure set up very similar to the previous one. You can see incidence density here, along with diets one and diet two represented. And so there is no statistical significance that I am reporting here, just simply a numerical difference and one that I think producers can appreciate much more than maybe the scientific community can. Um, BRD incidence was 28% greater for cattle that were on the lower protein diet. So once again, we did not find a statistical difference. Um, so we can't take these things and run with them and report that if we feed an increased level of crude protein, that we're gonna see a reduction in BRD. We can't say that based off these results. Uh, but I just wanted to present this to you to let you see that we did see a numerical difference 28% greater incidence of BRD for those cattle that were not, uh, or that were consuming that lower protein diet. And so take home message is that diet was not significantly associated with BRD incidence, but there was a 28% greater chance for the cattle on the lower protein diet. And so just to wrap, that, uh, wrap this up, um, so stocker cattle production obviously can be a profitable and rewarding enterprise for beef producers in the state of Louisiana. Remember, we, we kind of have a, a climate that's pretty ideal in order for us to grow forages year round and, and turn calves out and hopefully get some efficient, um, low cost weight gain on, on these young, lightweight, freshly weaned calves. Um, several management factors have to be considered and our management practices need to be tailored to meet the needs of each individual operation. Um, our producers need to have a plan for marketing cattle um, at the end of the stocker phase. So we need to know uh, up front or, or you need to know up front what you want to do with these things uh, after this um, stocker phase is over. And one thing that I already mentioned um, or touched on a little bit and said that, you know, we could have an entire webinar related to um, the impact of the stocker phase and the management practices that are completed or done and how that impacts the animal as it moves through the, the production cycle. But producers and all of us in the beef community really need to realize that the decisions that are made on the farm um, will ultimately have an impact further down the production cycle. 
And we should be mindful of that when we're making those day-to-day management decisions on our specific operation. And so with that, that's all I have. Dr. Edwards, I will turn it back over to you and I can entertain any questions if there are any of those. Okay, thank you. Um, So I don't see any questions just yet, but those of you that are with us online, just a reminder that we do have the Q&A box that you can type your questions into. You can also send them to me through text if you've called in. Um, My number is 512-818-5476. Tyler, thank you for speaking today, first of all, but I appreciate several perspectives um, that you brought in and uh, we are we're at our Louisiana County our cultural agents meeting this week and yesterday we were uh, visiting the Red River auction barn and um, it was brought up um, I guess the vaccinations are a type of insurance and I, I think that that is something that Tyler has really shown here um, that it is important and another point that you brought up was um, that um, we're all in this to produce beef. And so even if you are just thinking about um, selling at weaning, if you're not, if you're a cow-calf guy and you're not really going into the stalker, um, think about the fact that you are marketing to these stalker operators and you maintaining those sound management practices gives you a higher quality product to market um, to hopefully bring you some more money there. Um, Tyler, we do have a question in the chat in the Q&A. Um, so it says based on difference differences in average daily gain and reduced incidence of treatment for BRD, was the exceed economical? So what was the return ratio? Was there a return ratio two to one, four to one? Um, do you mind touching on that? And I can repeat yeah, it if you need me to. I got the chat pulled up. And, and so um, let me just read through it and make sure I touch on it appropriately. Yeah, so and I think that um, that that's a, a good point. And every producer meeting that I've ever presented this at, um, even at some of the veterinary conferences that I had a chance to present this at, this came up. And and unfortunately, we did not do any sort of economic analysis um, to to figure that out or to answer that question. And so um, since I left Mississippi State, um, I think I graduated in 2015. So this work is you know six or seven years old. Um, but since then, this was kind of the first stalker project that they um, conducted. And since my time there, um, they've probably done, uh, I would say, at least one, probably two projects a year related to some sort of stalker cattle management. They've got a really good group of researchers there and a really good collaboration between the animal science department and the vet school. And so I think in some of the more recent research studies that they've done, um, they've considered this economic factor. And really, I think that's a a really big point. And every time I present this, I wish that I had answers for that, because I know from a production standpoint and when we're visiting with people who do this for a living, obviously, that's what they need to know. Is this an economical management decision? And am I going to see returns if I implement this? So so to answer the question, I don't have an answer because we didn't we didn't analyze this from an economic standpoint. Thank you. Um, we do still have a few minutes if y'all want to go ahead and get some more questions into the Q&A um, or if you have a follow-up on that just let us know. Tyler I'm going to take over the screen. You can stay unmuted if you'd like um, if I can remember how to do. There we go. Um, 
I'm going to share a PowerPoint on my end. Hopefully, uh, Tyler, can y'all see that? Yep, it's there. OK, um, so if y'all don't mind, um, please take just a few minutes, whether you're listening to this live or recorded um, and go in and do a survey feedback or feedback survey, excuse me, on uh, our webinar today. Um, this also gives you the chance to go in and if there's some talk uh, topics that you would like us to talk about um, or presenters that you would like to hear from, uh, you do have the, the ability to go in and add that. It only takes a couple of minutes to do this survey. Um, there's a couple of different ways to do it, so you can use your camera on the phone to view this QR code. You'll see a little banner pop up and you can click that. It'll go straight to the survey uh, in whatever internet browser you have on your phone and take just a couple minutes to do that. If you are listening to this in podcast version or if you're watching us on YouTube, um, YouTube, you can still do the QR code, but both podcast and YouTube version, I am going to have the link to the survey posted below um, in our video and podcast descriptions. Um, so I'm gonna leave this up just a few more seconds. Tyler, do you see any other questions in that chat box? Oh, there's nothing else there. So with that, Tyler, thank you again and thank you everybody um, for taking time to uh, view this. I do think Tyler next year if you have um, have a free day to come in and do a webinar on um, more on the stalker industry and go into um, management strategies for stalker calves and uh, particularly how that impacts our feeder um, or our fed cattle and um, I think that would be very beneficial. I know that we're starting to see a lot more of our cow-calf producers start to venture into stalker and even feeding out for retail beef here in the state. Um, and so I think that would be beneficial for them to see as they start to go in and move into other segments of the industry. So um, again, thank you all and we will be back with y'all next month.